Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Campo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, writer, comedian, and host of the How to Citizen podcast, Baratunde Thurston is here helping us process the impeachment acquittal and maybe find some humor in all of this political drama. And speaking of drama, there's an upheaval at the New York Times and Central Park Karen Amy Cooper has completed racial sensitivity training. Hmm. We'll get into all that. And very special guest, actress and comedian Michelle Buteau on her new book and Netflix special. It's like a family reunion today. We didn't talk about Valentine's Day. What'd you get? Who, me? You. Yeah, what'd you get? Oh, you my got anything. I, I actually, my husband bought me a uh, Protect Black Journalist sweatshirt, but I told him I didn't want anything, to be fair. So... Uh-huh. He was create and flowers, which I always love, love, love flowers. Did would you, you would you, would you give? Not a damn thing. What? What did you you're give? Breaking up, Keith. Your connection is nah, no, I'm not. Right now. Nah, 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 I'm right next to the to the router. You can hear me. I'm, <laughs> the, pri- I'm the prize. What are you talking about? And <laughs> word. I'm gonna give. Um, what about you, you guys? Word with a hard R. <laughs> <laughs> How? What did your fiance get you, Keith? Um, a child. <laughs> okay, well, in that case, I gave that motherfucker two gifts. I gave him two kids. How about you, Wes? So allegedly, my gift is still in the mail somewhere. Allegedly, All right, so this is the UPS stuff because our, so Valentine's Day is also our anniversary. Oh, so, did you have your first date on Valentine's Day? Do you not know this story? No. Yeah. That's where I didn't even know his, anything That's where about Freddie gets his story. name from. So okay. I got. Two, how many years has it been now? Two years ago, I got invited to a gala by the Frederick Douglass family. Oh, wow. It was going to be his 200th birthday, and they wanted to honor 200 people carrying on the legacy, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. All right, so I was one of the journalists. And so it's Black Tie Gala, 200 invite only by the family at the Library of Congress. And Frederick Douglass, because he was a slave, didn't know his birthday but his mom and his grandma would call him Valentine growing up. So he picked a Valentine's day as his birthday. That's one of my favorite stories that that story just breaks my heart. And so, and so this was, I was single at the time and this was a very complicated plus one endeavor. Just for those listening only that audio is our fifth co-host, right? Yes. Is that Freddie? That's Freddie. With a chew toy. That's Freddie with a chew toy. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so that was, it was a complicated, uh, plus one scenario, right? This is an event you want to go with someone. Uh, you want to go with someone, right? It's going to be this big fancy thing, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But it's black tie. I'm being honored. So it's obnoxious to begin with at the Library of Congress and it's on Valentine's Day. So it can't just be like anyone. Right. You don't want them getting the wrong idea. You don't oh, want yeah. They would get the wrong idea invited to that. Correct. That is not just the like, oh, you're interesting. Come with me to. Right. So I'm sitting here like at my desk, literally like making a list on a piece of paper, like trying to figure out options. (laughs) Um, And Hannah, who's been like a really good friend of mine at this point for a few years, she was up in New York and she G chats me like, hey, I'm going to be in town second week of February. And I was like, oh, do you have a dress? And so that was our first that was our first date. Let me tell you something. You can call me whatever you want to call me, but ain't no woman called just called you at random. Like I'm a happen to be in DC. <laughs> I'm a happen to be in town the week of Valentine's Day. By the way, what what are you doing? Like, come on, fam. Well, come first fam. of all, that's such a cynical take. It is, and it's true. And second of second of all, Bruh. if it was orchestrated, it worked quite well, and I would not yes. expect Wesley to be with a dumb woman. So she is a very smart woman. I'm not. Uh, listen, I'm not. I'm not I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't say that it was a bad thing. I'm just saying, like, let's be clear that that was not a coincidence, right? I'm not saying that. <laughs> I mean, she was still in her like little naive. I don't know what this is. I mean, I know we're really close friends who we flirt all the time, but like, what, my friend? No, I would never. You know, she was still in that like. That's the, that's the long con, thing. man. That's the long con. That's the long con. You are such a cynic. That's the long con. I told you, you have become the old uncle at the barbecue. And now she got a house and a puppy. She sounds like a very smart woman. Now it's time to run through the headlines. Let's go through what we're talking about this week. 
The first uh, was this story that came out of the New York Times. There's a story called um, Postcard from Peru, Why the Morality Plays Inside, plays inside the New York Times Won't Stop. It was written by Ben Smith, who was actually uh, one of the founders at, Buzz, at BuzzFeed and is now a media columnist. And so the interesting thing, and Wes, you, you've been very vocal about this. The interesting thing about the story is that it, it, it frames... It's a story about one reporter or one former reporter, former uh, lead healthcare reporter at the at the New York Times, who ultimately left left the paper. Recently left the left the paper, um, and had been accused of making some racist remarks on a trip to Peru with um, uh, with some high school students. And one of the things that uh, that came out was that he was that he used the N word, used the N word with the hard R. Uh, but allegedly used the word in a in a discussion where he was talking about racism, so not calling somebody the the n word, but using it in a, in a broader context. But also, uh, he said to these students that racism was over, uh, that if that that nothing bad happens to black people anymore, and that if we all wanted to get out of the ghetto, we 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 could if we just you know wanted it bad enough. Uh, and this was a guy who was in charge of reporting, like I said, on. Healthcare at the largest um, largest newspaper and most visible newspaper in, in the country, including write, writing about the uh, the pandemic, uh, which we know has impacted again black and brown communities more severely uh, than than it has other communities. What's your what's your what's your thought about that, Wes? Let, talk talk about why you've been so involved in this conversation. Sure. You know, so look, I think this has been a fascinating conversation. I think that one of the things Ben got right, because um, I thought there's a few things. First is that I, I do think Ben Smith's one of our better and probably the best media reporter we have, if only because when he writes, he reports. So there's new information, there are new details uh, that we kind of live in a take economy right now where everyone's got an opinion, everyone's got seven podcasts and a Twitter feed and a column. And you mean like there us. is something... Correct. But it's, it's, it's so important to have folks out there who are still kind of in the trenches getting the information out so we can figure out what's going on. Because in cases like this, what we see so often is everyone is forming their opinions of what's happened before we actually have any factual information about what has happened. And at a place like Times, that has such a large kind of media and cultural imprint in this moment, right? It's a time when a lot of our local TV news and local papers have been gutted uh, over the course of decades. The Times really does occupy a singular space in the media environment in the United States um, with you know, the Post and the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal kind of in a second tier, but the New York Times really is the, the kind of preeminent news organization in the country. And so things that play out at the times are these kind of mini scandals and novellas for all of us upon which we can project all of our politics. And whatever we think is good about the country, it's what's happening at the New York Times. Whatever we think is bad at the country, it's happening at the New York Times. And he's alleged to, in, in the midst of an interaction with these students, uh, he's alleged to have used the N-word in repeating it back to them. They said they were asking his opinion about whether or not one of their classmates should have been suspended uh, because she posted a video of herself, perhaps singing it in a song or something like that. And him and inquiring about the context of how she used the word himself used it uh, at least once, but possibly multiple times. So McNeil, all these complaints get filed. McNeil gets uh, called into HR at the New York Times. Dean McKay, the editor, has said that he initially wanted to fire him over it. But after doing some additional investigation, kind of thought, all right, maybe a second chance. And McNeil goes on to become the lead reporter uh, covering this pandemic for the Times, a bit of a journalistic superstar. This case comes six months, nine months after the kind of industry-wide reckoning, and we're going to do better, and everyone's talking about all this stuff. And here we have a case of a white journalist accused of doing something racist, right, or behaving, comporting himself in a way that a reasonable person could see as racist. First of all, you know, he's reported to have said the, the N-word with a hard R repeatedly. And that word should be hard for any non-Black person. It, it's hard for Black people to say. It should be hard for a white person to get that word out of their mouth. And you can always tell when somebody is way too comfortable saying it. You can always tell when somebody's way too comfortable saying it. And saying it in, a bunch, in front of a bunch of high you don't even know? If it doesn't choke you on the way out, 
if it doesn't pain you to say it, you can always tell when somebody is far too comfortable saying it. So that's, that's the first thing that I'll say. The second thing that I just think is so important, I think there's the perception among the general public that because journalism is supposed to be an objective in, endeavor, that there is in fact true objectivity in newsrooms and that the people that they're getting the news from are objective human beings reporting the facts objectively and plainly. And what I think people need to realize and what we're what we're what we're seeing now more journalists call attention to is the fact that that's not the case. The same things that are happening in society, the same things that are happening in police departments, the same things that are happening in government and politics, the same things that are happening in medicine, all the systemic inequalities that we see, the discrimination, the microaggressions, all of it is also happening in newsrooms. And the reason that's important is because that's the source of your information. So everybody's understanding about race, their understandings of politics, their understandings of inequalities when it comes to medical care, their understandings of why COVID is killing so many more Black people than others. All of that understanding and information is coming from a flawed system. You're not getting your news from a bunch of objective robots. These are the people that you're getting your news from. Well, I, and I think that setting aside the specifics, right, I, I, I also think that a big part of our job, and I think, and I think it's increasingly part of our job. It wasn't necessarily true 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but a, a big part of our job is often to be public facing in a way it wasn't before, right? That there are any number of times where I'm sitting on a panel or I'm speaking to a group of students and I take a question that I might have strong personal feelings about politically, right? But I also, being someone with base level judgment, understand uh, is a perilous space to be in, uh, right? Uh, you get the Israel-Palestine question. <laughs> you get the, from, from the person who has a whole speech before the question, right? You're, when, I, when I speak in criminal justice spaces, I get very charged questions in a lot of different directions. And part of my job, if I want to work in a mainstream newsroom, is to be able to navigate that question in a way that is, that is enlightening, but also inoffensive to the people with whom I'm speaking. And, and again, I think black journalists and journalists of color and women have always understood this because it's something we call code switching, that when it's just the three of us having a, our group call planning the podcast, I can speak in a totally different cadence and lingo and shorthand than when we're having the conversation in public and how that conversation will get a little bit different. I think there's a real question in a world in which people of color and women are more empowered in these professional environments, have the ability to speak up if some of that behavior is going to have to change, where it's no longer going to be quaint and cute and just part of what working here. Oh, I would love to talk about Central Park Karen, uh, Amy Cooper, because the Manhattan District Attorney on Tuesday announced that they were dropping charges against her. If you recall, uh, she is the white woman who called the police on Black birdwatcher Christian Cooper and was recorded on camera saying that she had her life threatened by a black man when in fact we could all see plainly that he had not threatened her in any way, shape or form. Um, she did face charges. She underwent some racial sensitivity training. According to her therapist, she made great progress in that racial sensitivity training, enough so that uh, she no longer warrants the charges uh, moving forward with the charges. It should be noted that Christian Cooper, who uh, was the black man that she called the police on, did not want to cooperate with the prosecution. He had a tremendous amount of compassion for her. This is one of those things where I think the crime committed against the broader, the offense taken by the broader, by the broader society uh, is much greater than what was, than what was actually playing out in, in the courtroom. And hear me out on this. So she, she had, she was charged with one count of falsely reporting an incident in the third degree. Leave out all of the media coverage of what happened, right? And, what, and the broader conversation about who she was and why she did what she did. To the attorney prosecuting this is, this is going, look, this, this woman, the worst she can, the worst she can get is, is a slap on the wrist anyway. Um, she's then gone to counseling. And I think the key thing is the victim in this case wasn't cooperating. That's gonna, that makes a difference. Now, I'm not justifying any of that. I'm just saying that by way of sort of giving an explanation as to why it may have been, uh, be, been disposed in that particular way. Second thing is, what are, how, how much damage, because there's a, there's a place that exists where even if you haven't been 
prosecuted by a court of law, there's damage that can be done to the reputation and damage that can be done to your, to your prospects going forward. This is a woman whose name is now synonymous with quote unquote Karening, um, synonymous with, with using a particular word, a, a proper noun as a pejorative that means a, you know, a person who's behaving in a particularly uh, racist way with detrimental conse consequences and, 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 and with the intent to, um, to be deceitful. I think, I don't know, I, I'm, a little bit, I'm a little bit torn on it, right? There's a, there's a chance that she could, that, that going forward, she could face, you know, so she could be ostracized and she could be, you know, she could, she could be limited in her job prospects. You know, Keith, I, I think you raised an important point with the idea that Christian Cooper did come out and say he didn't want a prosecution. I think Christian Cooper is like the most interesting man in America, right? He's like out bird watching and he was hyper involved in gay marriage politics and also like draws comic books. And like, I think he's fascinating. I would read a billion profiles of Christian Cooper. But I do think it's important that when, when he kind of comes out and says, this is where I'm at at this, I think he does get a seat at that table and to get to have a conversation. But I also think it's true, and I think this is what makes this case hard for a lot of folks, and for a lot of Black folks specifically, is, is the, the disparity in treatment for an Amy Cooper versus the average Black person uh, accused of a crime, right? That, I, that you can at the same time say, yes, more crimes should have non-charges and conviction ways out of them. We should, as in our system, show more grace and mercy to people who may get caught up on their worst day or make a series of bad decisions. And yet in this case, you see a woman who clearly does something that imperils Christian Cooper's safety, clearly files a false police report, and yet walks away with this leniency. What I think people are upset about is not as much the leniency that she received, but rather the inconsistency about how leniency is, is applied. But I think as both of you noted, it's not that we want police to shoot everybody. We want police to not shoot black people. And it's not that we want um, Amy Cooper to be put under the jail. We just want black people to be given the same compassion, the same grace, the same mercy, the same humanity that she is getting. So if if it's a conversation about the, the punishment fitting the crime, yeah, Wes, you're 100% right. Nothing bad happened to Christian Cooper that day. He had an argument with a lady in the park at the end of the day, right? It was probably upsetting. He seems to have gotten over it very quickly. No harm, no foul. Why not give her a break? And that's fine. And, you know, Keith, you bring up the issue of kind of societal punishment. Is she going to be able to get a job? Is she going to be ostracized from her community? I'm willing to bet that an awful lot of people who look like her are going to completely forgive her for this because they're going to feel bad for her because she's suffered enough. Right. And that comes from a place of compassion. And it's that compassion that you see completely lacking when we're having these conversations where um, the quote unquote perpetrators are black or brown, where you see people in the worst kinds of circumstances, like a mother leaving her children in the car to go to a job interview because she couldn't afford childcare. And she gets the book thrown at her where somebody, you know, maybe lies about their address so their children can get into a better school district because they want the best for their children's future, which every parent on this planet wants, and they get the book thrown at them. So that's what's upsetting about this is it's highlighting the lack of compassion that so many black, brown and poor people face every single day. I have a question for the two of you. If you were Christian Cooper, would you have de declined to cooperate with the prosecution? I like to think I would do what Christian Cooper did in this with this exact same scenario. Nothing actually befalls me. I'm suddenly an internet celebrity and everyone thinks I'm dope. Um, like, it, like based in the exact same scenario Christian Cooper is, I don't, if only frankly, because I don't have time to be dealing with all this nonsense, right? Like that, that if there's one thing that's valuable is my time and I don't have time to be going to court appearances for Amy Cooper about the time she did the racism towards me. Like I, I gotta move on. Keith, you Malcolm or Martin? He's like, um, lock her up. I'm, I'm, <laughs> you, y'all, y'all already Keith knew. Keith under the jail. Y'all, y'all already knew where I was going, right? Like, you got, you got to go to let something like that slide, to see someone try to weaponize that against me or someone who looks like me in a way that could, that could have ended 
very badly for me or someone who looks like me and to and to and to know that they did it deliberately and to then have and have the opportunity to speak up and and then to say oh, no i'm gonna let I'm, I'm gonna let it go i'm you know i'm gonna i'm going i'm going to choose peace I, I, don't, I don't choose i don't choose peace in that in that scenario and it's not because i want to be punitive or because i would want to ruin this particular person's life but i think that that at a certain point You've got to stand on the principle and you've got to make the point. Now it's time for the long run, our weekly in-depth topic with our guest this week, Baratunde Thurston. This week is going to be, in a lot of ways, continuation of some of the conversations we were having last week with April Ryan uh, from the White House, um, from the White House coverage for the Grio. But now we're having our conversation in the context of the impeachment trial is over. Donald Trump was impeached by the House. He was acquitted by the Senate, even though there were more votes to convict him than there were not. That's not how the Senate works. It's funny math. And so uh, what that means is that while Donald Trump is the only president in United States history to be impeached twice, he does not face any ongoing political repercussions for the insurrection on January 6th. He can run for office again. Um, and so, you know, where does that leave us now? To talk about all this, we've got a great writer, comedian, dude on the internet, uh, Baratunde Thurston, uh, and you know, wanted to bring you in and get your thoughts. W what did you make of everything that happened this last weekend, week, month, years, decades? W what do you think of all this? Thank you, uh, Wesley. I've appreciated your reporting for years now. It's nice to interact with you in social media, but also in we're, this is like three things. I see you on the Zoom and I'm hearing you in the room and I've got a version of you in my head just from having read your words over the past few years. So appreciation to the Run Tell This family um, for bringing me into this week. It's a lot. It's a lot, man. Um, we have, you know, this is all still in the context of COVID to me. This is in the context of a disease we were told was going to bring us all together. And, uh, you know, doesn't pick winners and losers. It was like this post-racial pandemic that we were supposed to be braced for exactly a year ago. That's what they braced us for. And then we saw the lie of that and we saw who it really affected. And we saw, we saw our governments choose where to prioritize resources. We saw them not having 95 masks or face shields. We saw them have, you know, riot shields and gas masks instead for us when we merely said, don't kill us in broad daylight, pretty please, please. And so in that context, I see this failure to hold one person accountable who has weaponized his power to hold everybody else accountable for things they haven't even done or things that pale in comparison to what he has. And so, you know, January 6, 2021 was a predictable and predicted outcome of the failure to hold certain types of people to account in this country. The same people who did the freaking uh, supercuts Hair, hair salon riots of summer 2020. They, that happened. That was the dry run. That was the dress rehearsal when they shut down the Michigan legislature with their guns because they wanted a haircut. So of course they would think, of course they would think that they could do this to the U.S. Capitol, to the people's house. And there is profit in it and there is power in it. So the Republican Party, which has sold all of us out in the pursuit of both those things, is unsurprisingly been willing to undermine our democracy even further. And, and so last week is last year, is last century. And it's, it's a repeat version of the story. And that's, that's sad, it's infuriating. Here's good news, most bipartisan conviction rate, you know, convic attempted conviction, conviction vote in the history of this constitutional tool. Still, we have the largest vote count. And the only reason that Mitch McConnell was able to twist his face into this disingenuous statement about, well, you know, we don't have the power to convict because he's not the president. The only reason he could say that is because we, the people made sure Donald Trump is no longer the president because he got his ass voted out by 10 million votes plus. And, and so it's, um, it's, a, it's a dangerous allowance that they've made to say, okay, for, as long as a president waits until after election day, they can be seditious as a mug. They can do what they want. As long as they're already out the door, they can destroy the Republic. That is the, 
That's not a loophole. That is a gaping undermining of the very principle of our democracy. And so Mitch McConnell rises yet again to the occasion to somehow justify the unjustifiable and self-aggrandize in the process. But, but but this is we all, we know this is all about their own political survival, right? You know, Nancy Pelosi comes out over the weekend and she was very blunt in saying, what's wrong with you? Can't you get another job? Why is this so important to you that you would sell out your principles, your the oath that you took um, in regards to your service to this country? You would sell out everything that you believe in for your own political survival. What's wrong with you? Why can't you do something else in the event that you were not to get reelected? And that's all that this was about was political survival. If you have everybody on the other side, for the most part, agreeing that the case was made and saying that their vote was a procedural issue, right? That the, their problem was with the constitutionality of the case. Not that the case was proven or not proven, but that it was a constitutional issue because you can't impeach someone who's no longer president when the reason that it was delayed till after he was out of office was because of Mitch McConnell to begin with. But um, this was just all about political survival. I think that for a lot of Republicans, the theoretical constitutional debate gave them enough cover, right? Oh, I just don't think we're even allowed to do this. So I'm voting against it. Now, if you watch the trial, uh, there were some pretty spirited arguments in both directions on that. It seemed pretty clear that most constitutional experts thought it was something they could do um, in terms of impeaching a president who has um, now left office. Uh, but and by the way, the vote passed. Once that question was settled, it really wasn't what they were supposed to be debating anymore. Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. He's the most popular Republican in the country. Uh, 74 million people voted for him like last week. <laughs> this, wasn't, this wasn't a long time ago. Um, and he received more votes than any other candidate in American history except for Joe Biden. Um, and if the primary were held today, he would be the nominee. And so I think that it's unsurprising then to me that someone with that level of power is not someone who a bunch of Republicans, both ambitious Republicans and also vulnerable Republicans, people coming up on, on elections, felt like they were willing to cross. And, and that, again, that's not to say that these were the right decisions, morally or ethically, or even based on the facts that were laid out. But again, we don't necessarily expect our politicians in these moments to make the right decisions. They make the political decisions. And, and so that's not, it, all that was unsurprising to me. And I guess the question now is, and one of the big questions now, is how much Donald Trump kind of looms over our politics moving forward, right? He's making noises about empowering a slate of people to run against people who voted against him. Maybe his daughter-in-law runs. He's obviously going to draw out questions about whether or not he's going to run again. And I'm really interested to see how much, you know, I feel like sometimes there was a, naive, a naivete amongst a lot of us where it was like election day and if the Trump loses, we never have to hear from this guy again. And I was like, no, that's not really how that works. And so it's going to be really interesting kind of moving forward to see what his ongoing legacy is and what his influence and sway over our electoral politics remains. There's a lot of talk about unity, of course, which in, in some people's minds, unity means complete forgiveness without accountability, um, which is not without precedent. That's pretty much what happened after the Civil War, right? People got to go back home to their plantations. They got statues erected in their honor, even though they started a treasonous, traitorous war against their own country. So there was very little accountability, if any, after the Civil War. We are in a dangerous place and we will remain so for a while. We're still fighting that civil war. That Confederate flag was flown. They didn't come up with a new flag. It's the same flag from 100 plus years ago. They, they're unoriginal, literally unoriginal. And I, I have some concerns about what the former president does, but it, it doesn't matter. He could say nothing for the rest of his life. He has emboldened, embraced, empowered millions. Million. He, he's created a permission structure for ugly. He's got clones and copycats who now see a path to power through violence, through intimidation, through bullying, through lying on a constant, multiple orders of magnitude basis we have not experienced before. We've experienced like, the government lies. Okay, yeah, yeah. In a general sense, people in government lie. Because people, in a general sense, lie. We are capable of deception. It's like a feature of our evolutionary construct. 
But what he did and what he showed you could get away with doing, that there's so much more that can follow this. And someone with more talent than him, with more discipline than him, can finish the job of finishing off this democracy. Biden said something essential and nuanced in his inauguration address about unity. And I'm putting air quotes up. Enough of us have come together to move all of us forward. That's my mental headline on his whole talk. Enough of us have come together to move all of us forward. And it has ever been thus. Everybody wasn't on board with the Emancipation Proclamation, but we got ourselves free. Everybody wasn't on board with taking out Nazi Germany, but they got got. So we just need enough. Let's let's be real and honest about that. And as far as how we move forward, I think we need you, the work y'all do in this storytelling realm of journalism. Critical. We got to keep an accurate record of what happened here. We've got to write it down and teach the babies. And so we must keep our eyes on this prize and keep it moving forward. Keep showing up and all the way. That's not just voting, right? That's being informed. That's spending our money wisely. That's being in communication with our neighbors and whatnot. Um, and understanding our power and all these levels, we got, we got to keep that up and we got to celebrate the people who do the right thing and remember those who did the wrong thing. Well, one of the things you mentioned is something we talk about a lot, which is, you know, telling the telling of the history and journalists are telling history in real time. And so what we see is this overlapping struggle along with what's been a really existential struggle for democracy politically, we see this overlapping struggle um, in the fourth estate, in journalism, in newsrooms, which are a lot of journalists for the first time feeling that they can speak openly, openly about the problems with coverage, about the fact that you know we had to fight to be able to say white supremacy. We had to fight to be able to call a racist a racist. We had to fight to use the word lie and not say a mistruth or spreads a falsehood. I mean, we had to fight to accomplish all of those things and they've only been accomplished in the last few years. You couldn't call a public figure a white supremacist five years ago. That's a fight that is happening simultaneously right now as this history is being written. Are people of color in newsrooms trying to get it right in real time? Well, not just that. So, this, so that, that's part of the fight that we fight internally in newsrooms. This was, this was the presidency of, and I said this as a, as a joke the other, I think on our last episode that I hadn't heard the word, uh, the term fake news in, 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 in two weeks. I haven't, I haven't now heard it in, in about the last month. Um, but this was the presidency of fake news. Like we, listen, all, all politicians tell, tell lies, all politicians spin things. It, it's part of the game. Um, you know, the, there's a such thing as a healthy level of skepticism that we have to have, especially in our business, but that, that everybody should have. Um, but we've now lived in and lived through an era where erosion of truth was the stock and trade of the, of the last administration. And they got so good at it. Um, and a lot of competing, a lot of different forces in, in culture broadly just have, have mounted this challenge to what to what truth actually is, and so now we're fighting against alternative facts on every on every side. Um, you know, when we we've talked on this show about uh, about vaccines and about the about the COVID virus and about how uh, about the negative consequences of you know trutherism with as it regards to vaccines and as it, as you know and and about um, conspiracy theories as regards to, to the COVID virus and how devastating that could be for specifically for black and brown communities that are already disproportionately in, impacted. Um, that's one manifestation of it. And I'm, I'm gonna guess that in the next election cycle, either in the midterms and, and certainly when 2024 rolls around, um, that, this is, that that's gonna be a battle all over again. Trump threw down a gauntlet that said, you don't even have to approach the truth. I think prior to that, we were in a space where po where politicians could kind of stretch the truth a little bit, toss in a few lies he here and there. Trump threw down this gauntlet that that is, you don't even have to stretch it. You can just you can tell bald faced lies all the time, and if facts don't match up with what you need politically, 
you can just you can just say whatever. You can call the journalists the liars. You can call you know you can call your voters the liars. You can call the other party the liars, um, and make the facts match your match what you need. And I think that's that's a new chapter in, in American politics, and I think it's a dangerous one that goes along with what uh, Baratunde was saying earlier. Um, and Baratunde, I wonder if I can put you on the spot for a second. Bring it on. <laughs> well, you come from a comedy background. Is there anything funny in this? Like, can you, can you, can we laugh to keep from crying? I mean, insurrection is hilarious when you <laughs> think about it. <laughs> help, I help think, me with that. I, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's a dark humor, you know, in some of it. And um, I think the level of preparation of the insurrectionists is, it's like, peculiar you know like they really they look like chaos monkeys but they brought bear spray you know and i think there's something to like the way the the police lack of response and seeing them under fire as much as we did and but part of me just kept thinking like you're hearing this audio you know we're outflanked we've lost the line and i'm just i can't i can't make sense of it because they just beat motherfuckers for stepping out of line you know, in the hood, like they, the, the, the restraint was like Oscar worthy. I'm like, why? And this is a, this is a terrible thing to say. So I want to be clear that I'm about to say a terrible thing, but I think it reveals it's a heightening of the contradiction to quote our Panther brothers. How did more people not get shot? How, how is that? It's, we were not watching a bunch of rent cops just armed with zip ties. And, and plastic badges. These were real police officers with real ammunition and real firearms who really felt their lives were in danger and they were right. Some of them lost their lives. And how many shots were actually fired? How many shots did Amadou get? You know, so like, it's not a joke, right? It is perverse. It's a, it's a, it's a dark twist because I'm just like, well, maybe we should have just rolled with more guns, I guess. Like, is it was that the, the horns? Lesson? If we had worn the horns and the furry vest, we needed horns and bear spray, and that's and that's what would, you know, obviously they would just shoot us harder. Right. right? Like, if we if we'd have showed up with with horns and bear spray, can you like they were they were asking for heat rays? That's they not would, even a they joke. Drop like, a they drop a they, they had an actual heat ray. They were like, "Where's the heat yeah. ray for people yeah. who didn't have nothing?" So, so I don't, it's I don't like, there's no, the there's no path. You know, it's like a, it's like, if I want to take a lesson from this, it's like, yeah, dress like a fake shaman, you know, who's into weird <laughs> stuff and spell bad, you know, like definitely spell, write your signs badly. Um, and, you know, don't take a pandemic seriously. Like we were doing all the wrong things. We're trying to stay alive. The best way to stay alive is to risk it, you know, but you know, the rules are obviously different for us and this is like this was a, a a white white with a white privilege coachella you know with deadly consequences that, that we just went through the last thought i have this is not a comedy though it's just a thought but what i there is a level of self-interest that i assumed that republicans had right where i'm like okay i know they don't care about my black ass cool they don't care about anybody up on this stage is ass. Cool. They don't care about no Mexicans, no Muslims. They really don't care about Christians writ large. They just, it's a weapon and a shield to be deployed strategically for gain. But they, they care about money, right? Like, can I count on a white man, Republican, who just care about acquisition of capital? Can, can I get them to care about stable economic markets? Can, can I get them to stand against like Russia? Like, this is Russia. It's talking. And to my, opposite of delight they have surprised and no they don't even care about their own babies and we should have known after parkland and, and Newtown. yeah and, you know like they don't care about and they literally don't care about themselves when the guns came for them when that mob which would not have separated the just from the unjust in their eyes they would have sacrificed mike pence they would have sacrificed themselves they that's nihilistic Baratunde, thank you so much for joining us. You have a terrific podcast. It's one of my favorites. Um, tell us about your podcast and where and how people can listen to it. Thank you for having me. The show is called How to Citizen with Baratunde. 
You can find it where you get podcasts. The show is all about taking the word citizen, interpreting it as a verb, not a legal distinction to be weaponized against people who don't have the right paperwork. But that's the mission. We're in season two pre-production right now. Very exciting uh, conversations and actions we're going to be taking with you. Right. Well, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. All right. Now to our final lap, what we're watching, reading and listening to. And this week we're checking out all things Michelle Buteau. The actor and comedian has a new book, Survival of the Thickest, and a new Netflix special, Welcome to Butopia. And she joins us now. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is the 23andMe cousin meetup family tree. I didn't even know that I wanted. It sure is. It's the family reunion. That's what this is. Truly. Michelle, I didn't realize that you have something in common with all of us. That you used to work in news. Yeah. I used to be a field producer and an editor for WSVN, the Fox Miami affiliate, and then also WSV, uh, WNBC and 30 Rock. So how did you make your escape from news, please? Oh, girl, uh, who, I, I, I prayed my way. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 weird and it's tragic, but, it, you know, it was beautiful at the same time. I mean, um, I was working the overnight shifts uh, when 9-11 happened and I was supposed to get off at 9.30 a.m. and 9-11 happened around 9 a.m. in the morning. And so um, most terrorist attacks happen at 9 in the morning. I'm like, can y'all just wait an hour so I can go home. Um, is that a is that a thing? Like, did you research that that most terrorist attacks happen <laughs> at that hour? Or like... I, no, I'm just going off of my experience. Please do not quote me. <laughs> no, nah, I wasn't even trying to yeah. quote you. I just want to yeah. know what like what time I should stay my ass in the house. Yeah, like, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, I don't know. Now with high speed internet, who knows? Everybody's on their own <laughs> schedule. But this was 2001, and so um, yeah, I started a comedy three days later. Like. Well, tried comedy three days later, but I had a bunch of um, uh, co-workers in the news tell me that I was funny and that I should like do stand up. And I'm like, but I'm happy. Yeah. Well, were you, you were also on the technical side. Were you editing? I was editing. Yeah. I really wanted to be a journalist, but um, fun facts. Uh, I had a professor tell me I was too fat to be on TV when I was no. in college. Really? Yes. Yes. 1996 wow. was hard, y'all. Ugh, it makes me so <laughs> upset to hear things like that, because what we need is representation everywhere, not just in well, TV and film, but on the news as well. Of course. And now we can say that out <laughs> loud and actually mean it and actually see people that look like us. But back then, you know, it was Oprah and Donahue and that's it. So I didn't question him. I was like, oh, I guess he's right. Um, so I went But it was production. big Oprah back then. I mean. Yeah. Like we didn't even we didn't even get thin Oprah to like the two thousands. So I know she was the one. It was almost like you have the one. Mm. Mm. So you have a new book out, Survival of the Thickest. Yes, world. One of the things that you talked about is kind of the camaraderie that you have found in Hollywood with other black actresses, and you talk about kind of the waiting room for casting for those black girl roles yes. where traditionally actors, you know, they're in competition with each other. So the energy in those rooms is not necessarily one of like love and camaraderie. And what I, what I was reading reminded me so much of the experience of black journalists, because even though in newsrooms we're a lot of times competing for the same assignments and the same roles, we like family. It's like, okay, if one of us makes it, we all make it like, let's support each other. Let's pray together. All the things that you yeah. described, what have you found in black Hollywood? Have you found that support and that love? I have. I really have. Um, in a way that I didn't expect because because everything is so cutthroat and everyone is just like, that was my job to be had. Like, I never came from that place. It was always like you're only in competition with yourself. You do what you can. I mean, how are you going to dismantle a whole ass patriarchy? Like just show up and have fun and leave. Do you know what I mean? I'm, for me, I just like do what I can because I get tired quite easily. Oh, this body is so heavy in all the right ways. And so I just <laughs> I had to swallow it. I'm sorry. Keep going. Keep Wait, going. No, what? No, what? Do tell. I'm the, I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I'm the resident, like, most likely to say something inappropriate in the middle of a conversation person on the panel. So, oh, <laughs> I, oh, that's what I you get to swallow. You, you gotta, you, you, you just gotta ignore me. No, I'm doing yes, your show. I'm doing your show. I do not want to ignore you. I want to know what you were thinking. I do too. I second thinking? that. The women want to know. 
I, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with it, with your sentiment. You are absolutely fantastically beautiful. And there's no reason anyone should have ever told you that you did not have the requisite uh, uh, aesthetic for anything. Oh, my God. Thank you, Steve Harvey. Can I keep playing Family Feud? That was such a politician <laughs> answer. It was okay. There you go. But he can't get in too much trouble with wifey. He has to, he has to you know, walk that line. It was I, diplomatic. I, I understand. Um, you yes, have a lot please. going on right now. You have, the book is out. Yes. You have the Netflix special. Yes. Welcome to um, Utopia. Your mom was in the audience. She sure I saw. Was. And she you was. were talking about your husband's I wasn't talking parts. about my husband's foreskin. I was talking about um, Prince Harry's foreskin, if we're really going to fact check. Uh, you ah! know what? <laughs> I stand corrected. That's okay. That's okay. However, foreskin was discussed. (laughs) Yeah, all the way off the rails. Look, I just said no. We the train has left the station. We go into fun town. Choo choo. (laughs) Like one of the first jokes I ever wrote was a dick joke. I'm I'm sassy. I'm funny. I'm dirty. I'm blue. I'm all those things. And I'm like, we can have a dollop. This is the utopia world. Like, yes, I'm a mom. Yes, I had a surrogate. Yes, we could talk about that stuff. We could talk about all this other stuff. But, you know, we need to also accept our bodies and also our sexuality. And I do have a whole essay in the book called Game of Hoes <laughs> because I think it's important to, um, again, not instill this shame and this fear of whatever we're going through. I was like very Catholic growing up. My uncle's the Archbishop of Jamaica. I was going to wait until I was married to have sex. Like, for a very long time. And I was like, wow, isn't this nice that I get to figure out, you know, like Julia Roberts in um, Runaway Bride, how I like my eggs. Cause no one ever asked me later in life and that's fine. I feel like, wow, isn't it, even if filming First Wives right now, having sex scenes, everyone's like, ooh, do you feel, do you feel okay about this? I said, I'm so proud as a size 18, 20, um, actress to be worthy of a sex scene and not just be the best friend at brunch that's just hearing all the escapades, sexcapades, you know, like big bitches are worthy of love too. And we're sexy and people do want us. So yeah, shout it loud and proud. If you want, if you want people to know. I'm just like a big fan of open up your mind, your heart, and your legs to love. I found my husband on a one night stand. It's been 12 years, happily married. What was the question? <laughs> I think uh, you lost a dollop of dick. I, I kind of got distracted a little bit, but I'm. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. Your mom no, was you in the got distracted by a dollop of dick. What's no, no, a dollop of dick <laughs> would never distract me. It takes a lot more than that. However, <laughs> it was the fact that your mother was in the audience that was what that's I remember. That's what it was. Yeah, because her so... face, she was like stone face. How do those very... jokes go over with her? She's a very conservative woman, but um, she's happy that I'm happy. It's. It's, I'm the only child, so, you know, it's, it's different when you're the third person. Um, you always end up disappointing them no matter what, <laughs> but you're also like the, the light in their eyes as well. So, you know, she knows me and she knows my heart and she knows my check. <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong with that check. I do, I do want to, I, I do want to get back to something that Mara asked, asked you in a different context, right? Um, because you mentioned dismantling patriarchy. Uh, we've talked about body positivity already in this conversation, um, and and clearly with the with the dick jokes, we're talking about sexuality in in all its forms, and and you know who gets to express it. Do you feel like there's a difference? Oh my God, of course. I mean, I feel like something happens every year, but it's um, so slight that you really can't put your finger on it. You know, when I listen to my friends, my young my younger friends. Um, complain about the lack of diversity and the Me Too movement and all the other things we need to do. I'm just like, I get it. And there's always more work to do, but look at TV five, 10, 15, 20 years ago. We, we, made, we made a leap, you know? And that's us pushing everybody. That's us creating our own content. That's us also having other platforms, you know, streaming platforms, um, to pitch to. It isn't just the same four or five places that we have to go to that are like, um, you know, decide if we're worthy or not. So yeah, I think it's um, 
definitely a different conversation publicly, but I've always been this bitch. Well, Michelle, I kind of wonder what, you know, a lot of your comedy and writing, you talk a lot about your body being a bigger woman, you know, like, and it's interesting, I think, like, in this moment where there is kind of a space where everyone can kind of talk the way they want to talk, how they want to talk about different things. Do you still see any backlash? I mean, do you see backlash to that still? Do you think there's some, are we going to fall off a cliff as it relates to, you know, like it's one thing for everyone to be like, yeah, we got Lizzo. And so we love, you know, big women. <laughs> but like what happens when we round the corner? You know, like. Yeah, of course. There's always going to be some sort of um, fat shaming, but, um, and there's also, you know, the fact that I talk about my body is, People are offended. Um, bigger girls are offended. They're like, why would you say that? It's like, because it's my body and I get to call myself whatever I want. You don't get to say whether I can say whether I'm fat. Fat is still beautiful. Uh, thick is delicious. Move on. You know, it, it's, I think it's important though that we, we have those conversations though. I mean, we don't have to cancel people. That's ridiculous. But you know, it's like that friend that loses too much weight. I'm not gonna talk about El Roker. Someone that loses so much weight and you're like, oh no, that doesn't look good on you. And then they like figure out the balance. That's what this is. We got to figure out the balance. I would love to hear about what you have in the works. Uh, you mentioned you're shooting uh, First Wives Club. You have the book, you have the Netflix special. You mentioned you're, you just finished a movie with J-Lo. What, what can we expect to see you in, in the coming months and years? Um, months and years. Dang, well, because I know tomorrow. movies always shoot like way ahead of time, right? You they shoot something do. that doesn't come out for like two years. That is correct. I just shot the JLo movie, well, a year ago, whoops, because what is 2020? Um, <laughs> and that comes out May 14th with Maluma and Owen Wilson and Sarah Silverman, and that was just like, that's so fun. You know, people that, you understand why they're forced to be reckoned with. I'm like, we're in between takes of a movie. She's dancing for no reason, talking to people. She has 20 people around her and she's just looking at iPads, making decisions, and I'm like, wow, I have a hangnail I have to get to. It's on my to-do list. And I just want to sit down. Like, what? She's just a walking Shark Tank episode all seasons. Anyways, what did you ask me? Oh, yes, the stuff I got going on. Can you tell I haven't talked to anyone all day? <laughs> is. You can um, come hang out with us anytime you want. <laughs> the movie, the book. Um, and I just filmed also a season of The Circle, season two of The Circle, that will be premiering on Netflix sometime, which is great. Oh, we definitely look forward to checking out all of it. Thank you for taking some time for us. Oh my God, see you at the next family reunion in New yes. Orleans. <laughs> in my white dress with a barbecue stain. <laughs> the all white party, <laughs> ow. <laughs> hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.